This is Chapter 80 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we take on the daunting task of trying to list all the books you must read in a lifetime. We see Red with the latest thriller from Kyle Mills, and we find out what it's like to write on your own after the death of a longtime writing partner. Veteran bookseller James Mustick spent 14 years writing his book, A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die. The hefty, and I do mean hefty book, it clocks in at about 900 pages, is a compilation of notable books spanning multiple genres and time periods. First thing I asked James is how he came up with the list. Well, I've been a reader for a long time and a, and a bookseller for four decades. So what I tried to do in the book was to, I wanted to make a record of the books that I've loved as a reader and also what I've learned as a bookseller about books in general, about reading uh, as an as a avocation and all the books I've heard about from the readers I've interacted with uh, throughout my career and kind of uh, make a, a record of that in one volume. And, and that's how I came up with a thousand books. Um, I tried to be um, expansive in my taste so there'd be something for every kind of reader because I, I think people tend to read the, uh, the way they eat more than we would normally think, which I mean, one day we might want a hot dog and the next day we'll have a salad and then we'll go out for a nice you know, three-course meal. Uh, and reading is kind of like that. We read for different purposes. Uh, we read for nourishment and for indulgence. And I wanted to have something for every type of reading appetite in here. I really do love the approach that you took. You, you imagine that these are the books that you would stock in a bookstore if you could only have a thousand titles. That had to be a daunting right. task. And, yes, exactly. And, and I wanted to, in those thousand, I wanted to have, you know, all of the, not all, but, but it's the, a good number of the key works, but also something for every type of reader. So if somebody were to come into that imaginary store and say, I'm going to be on a plane for five hours and I just want a story to lose myself in, or if it was a family that had, uh, you know, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old, what would I have on the shelves that I could recommend? So that gave me a way to get a handle on the thousand um, because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to organize it, and that that seemed to be the best. All right, now you've piqued my curiosity. What book would you recommend for a really long plane ride? Ah, a really long plane ride. Well, there's a a novel uh, by Neil Stevenson, who is a master of science fiction, but this particular book uh, is interesting because it's kind of, it has the feel of science fiction, but it's historical. It's about... Uh, Isaac Newton uh, discovering the laws of uh, gravity, and uh, and there's lots of science in it, but there's also pirates and uh, all kinds of uh, of adventures that are in- intertwined with this, and it is just uh, totally absorbing. It's called Quicksilver, and if you like that, it's the it's the first of a three volume series, so there's more to go on. So if if you like that kind of thing, um, you couldn't find a better companion for a long trip. Now, one of the cool features about this book is that you took the extra step of including suggestions for further reading and new things to try if you like already like stuff from this author. Why did you do that? One, because after so many years as a bookseller, it's second nature. 
And also because I knew the way I would use a book like this is I would go right to the authors and books I'd already read to see if they were in there. So let's say it's, uh, for argument's sake, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, a book that I love. Uh, but I've already read that, and I'd want to see what the author had to say to make sure uh, he knew what he was talking about. But I wanted to give that a reader like that other directions to go off from the book uh, to other recommendations, um, books that they might enjoy if they enjoyed Great Expectations, maybe a book about Dickens' life. Um, so for every book, I do have that section at the end. So it really, the book encompasses about closer to 6,000 titles than, than 1,000 altogether. And I also recommend good audiobooks uh, when I know them uh, that that people can um, used to to get into some of these books, as well as movies, and and if there's musical works based upon the um, the books. And I've heard you joke that you could have called this book a thousand arguments. <laughs> well, you, you know, once once uh, people knew I was writing a book called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, I could never enjoy a dinner party in the same way because <laughs> people would come up and say, you know, is this in there? Is that in there? Is this in there? You know, well, how could you not put this in there? But that's part of the fun for me. I really, this book is is not meant to be uh, in any way comprehensive or authoritative. Uh, I think it's informed and, you know, I hope people will find it entertaining, but it's really meant to spark exactly those conversations where people are talking about um, the books that have meant the most to them because it's through books that people really talk about what means most to them in their lives. You know, deciding what to read next is really uh, a prelude to other questions like uh, who we're trying to be in the world. And so the conversations are really um, filled with meaning, and, and the more we can have them, the better. And so I am, I am happy to uh, have spent 14 years writing this book and to spend the next 14 years people telling me, you know, what I got wrong. <laughs> Looking forward to those conversations. I imagine like a fun game for an avid reader would really just to be open up to a random page. If you haven't read that book, then pick that book up the next time you're in a bookstore. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. You know, one of the really fun things about a bookstore is you go in looking for something specific, but then there's always something or two things or three things that catch your eye, things that you're interested in that, um, you forgot you were interested in or that you heard about on a radio show. And so I wanted the book to kind of work in the same way. So have you read all thousand books? I've read almost all of the books. I, you know, I've been a bookseller for a long time. So I suspect that there are a few of these I've been talking about so long and so deeply with readers that if there was a, you know, forensic investigation, maybe I didn't read a couple of them end to end, but by and large, the answer is yes. And do you have a favorite? Uh, well, that changes from day to day. You know, there's a couple. One that I'm, I've been uh, talking about a lot because I, I just reread it is a wonderful book. It's ostensibly for 10 to 12-year-olds, but it's as um, meaningful a novel as I've ever read. It's a book called The Mouse and His Child by Russell Hoban, uh, which I really recommend to people. It's a surprising story about uh, these toy mice who leave the toy shop and have all these adventures. Uh, it is not uh, um, juvenile in any way, and uh, you end up really pondering uh, uh, what what your life means and and uh, how to be happy. Um, so that's at the top of my list right now. 
So the the new book, the gra- self-gratifying, the controversial, the great read is A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, a life-changing list. James Mustick, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today about it. Thank you for having me. You've probably already guessed this by now, but I read a lot of books for this podcast, and I've noticed something this year, and you might have noticed it too, but there are a lot of spy thrillers out there where Russia is the bad guy. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and declare 2018 the year of Putin. You heard it here first. Enter into the fray Red War, featuring the Mitch Rapp character created by Vince Flynn and now written by Kyle Mills. Kyle tells our Pat Farnack that of all the world's dictators, Vladimir Putin scares him the most. Vladimir Putin has a great deal of power, obviously a significant military and asymmetrical capability. And he, in a way, he's not, he's not uh, bashful about using it. Uh, Russia's strange in that they spend a lot of time trying to tear down the rest of the world as opposed to uh, trying to build themselves up. And he's scary, too. Yeah, he does. He's like the poster child for ex-KGB. Looking in his eyes, uh, there's something about his eyes, even on video. Yeah, he is, a, he is an unsettling guy, and that's why I used him sort of to to base my character on. Not really, not sort of. Uh, it was a few books ago I introduced his character. He's called Maxime Krupin in, in my book. And I was doing research on Vladimir Putin to kind of help create this character. And I decided that his backstory was so great that I didn't need to change anything. So that character is really just Vladimir Putin, but under a different name. Now, the Russian leader, Maxim Krupin, uh, you ask the questions, what what happens when a dictator becomes really ill? And you know, when I was reading uh, Red War, I was thinking about how FDR, remember, he never used to want to be photographed in his wheelchair because it, the optics weren't good. And this is going way beyond that with Maxim. Right. And in his environment. So, I mean, he's... A, Vladimir Putin really is obsessed with the fact that a lot of dictators during the Arab Spring fell and met with pretty grim ends, you know. And so he's actually, and this is true, sits around and watches the death of Gaddafi over and over again um, at the hands of his own people. So he's worried about losing power. He knows if he does, you know, probably somebody put a bullet in his head. And if not, probably at the very least, he would uh, end up in prison. So he has to cling to it at whatever cost. And this book uh, assumes that he gets brain cancer, and it may be survivable, but he's going to be weak during the treatment period. And how would he handle that? You know, he has so many enemies in the West, but he also has enemies surrounding him, people that would love to take his job and uh, you know, wouldn't mind killing him if, if they had the opportunity. So he has to figure out how to, how to hide that and uh, that he's ill and get him through the treatment period. So in his mind, one of the best ways to do that would be to start a war with the West. Uh, He doesn't have to win it. It just has to be a great distraction. And while that is all happening on the international front, he is experimenting on people in a secret hideaway in the mountains. Yeah, well, you think about a guy who will do anything. You know, he doesn't really have any moral foundation. His only concern is survival, both actual survival and the survival of his power structure. So, you know, he has cancer and he's interested in all these experimental uh, treatments, but 
he's not going to test him on himself. So it seems logical to, if your guy as powerful as him, to go through Russia, gather up people of similar conditions, and just experiment on them. Of course, nobody lives to talk about it. No, no. You don't have to. You have to say about Vladimir Putin. He's he is actually very good at maintaining power. So uh, in this book, I mean, he's a terrible, ruthless guy, but he's also pretty rational. Our hero, Mitch Rapp, really seems to be the only one who can save the day. Yeah, that's the great thing about Mitch. <laughs> you know, he he could always uh, he always has a good shot at saving the day. <laughs> so yeah, and it's it's an interesting scenario for him because this is probably the most grand scale of the Mitch Rapp books in that, you know, there's a war starting, you know, there's there's naval battles and, and you know, invasions of countries and things. And at its center is always, you know, Mitch Rapp, the, the one guy with his Glock who always seemed to, seems to be able to pull a rabbit out of his hat. Well, certainly. And, and I was thinking about the guys who went in to get Osama bin Laden during this whole thing. A very similar guy. Yeah, to be able to go into a country you're not really familiar with and uh, operate like that is uh, not, not something very many people can do. Kyle, your dad was director of Interpol, is that right? And and also right, an yeah. FBI agent. So you were sort of really marinated in this world. Yeah, you know, my entire childhood, I was surrounded by FBI guys, CIA guys, MI6, MI5, um, spec ops guys. So it was kind of why I got into thriller writing. I wanted to write a novel way this way back in the day, and I read on a lot of broad, you know, subject matters. I'd always loved thrillers, and I thought, particularly because this was before the internet, you know, what would be an easy thing to do? And they say, write what you know. And I knew all these people I had for so long, and I could always call them with questions. And so I thought, a oh, thriller novel. That would be perfect. <laughs> Write what you know, like you said. Uh, your lead time in in writing these books is, it's over a year, isn't it? Or maybe even two years? No, no, it's about a year. Okay, a so, year. Yeah, I have a book due every April. Wow. So this is so timely, though. Even with that uh, that constraint, how do you pull that off, that everything seems to be like it happened yesterday, or you've been writing it for only like a month? Kind of, it's always a trick, and it doesn't always work out for you. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. I don't think people think about the the fact that you when you come up with your concept for a book, it's probably 18 months or something before the book's actually going to hit shelves. So mm-hmm. you have to you can't just be thinking about what's happening now. Uh, you have to think about what's happening, you know, 18 months from now. And truth be told, sometimes you miss it, I, or or it or history overtakes you. So you have to be really careful. I, I wrote a book once called Sphere of Influence that was pretty much a description of 9-11, and I turned it in five days before 9-11. Oh. Um, so history very much overtook me, and my editor called and said, you know, basically this book is unpublishable. So I had to rewrite it and make it seem less like 9-11. That's, that is a spooky story. Yeah, it was very it was weird because I mean I thought I was really safe. Nobody had ever heard of Osama bin Laden, even Al Qaeda at that point. I had to call a friend at the CIA and confirm that that's what the organization was actually called. It it just wasn't on or particularly on anybody's radar at the time. Well, not only that, but using a passenger plane to uh uh fly into a building, who thought of that before 9/11? 
Well, people had thought of this. I, I mean, my uh, my father, I remember way back in the day at the FBI, had wanted to uh, make it a rule that the uh, that the doors in a plane uh, that led to the cockpit would have to be locked. Uh, but he got a lot of pushback from the airline industry. Wow. Now, Hollywood has certainly come calling before for American Assassin, but what about Red War? Any interest I could imagine that there would be? Not not yet. I just came out a few days ago. So <clears throat> we'll see, though. The, you know, they're, they're working on a script for uh, another uh, Mitch Rapp book. So we're, our fingers are crossed that uh, we'll either see uh, another movie or a series. What are you working on now? Working on the next Mitch Rapp book. I'm about halfway done with it. So, because uh, it's, it's due in April already, which is the, the clock is ticking. It sure is. Uh, any hints on maybe a locale for this? Yeah, there's there's kind of a bio threat and there's the cartels are involved in it. And uh, I'm kind of going back to what I consider more of a, a very classic Vince Flynn uh, Mitch Rapp book. Uh, this one was very grand in scale with the Russians and the military and everything. And I kind of wanted to go back to one where it was just very much about Mitch kicking butt. So, and it's been really fun. Those are really fun books to read and they're fun to write too. They sure are fun to read. Well, thank you for writing that. And thank you for, for, uh, doing the interview this morning. Thanks for having me. PJ Tracy was the pseudonym of the mother-daughter writing team PJ and Tracy Lambrecht. The two wrote multiple books together until PJ's death in 2016. The new thriller The Guilty Dead marks the first solo outing for Tracy. I recently spoke with her about the book and what it was like to write without her longtime partner in crime. So this is the ninth book in the series featuring the Monkey Wrench crew. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Oh, well, let me see. It is, it centers around a very powerful family dynasty. And um, like most good thrillers or mysteries, um, they have very shocking secrets they're trying to keep. Their secrets are so shocking, actually, when I was writing it, the end shocked me as well. But it begins with a patriarch of the family found dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound on the one-year anniversary of his son's overdose. So a suicide is a logical conclusion, but they discover another body on the property and multiple inconsistencies, and they quickly determine it was a homicide. And then um, it becomes um, kind of a breakneck runaway train. They work, the detectives work through deceit and revenge, tangle of digital evidence that ultimately connects the death and the overdose to a terror plot, unbridled political ambitions, the tragic death of a 14-year-old girl 20 years ago. It's full of secrets. There's a great murder mystery in this. The terror plot, you know, really keeps you on the edge of your seat. But I was struck really the most with this book is is how parents can act in the name of love for their children, whether that's good or whether that's bad. And that really seems to be a running theme with all the characters in this book. Yeah, it really was. And um, it was a very emotional, intense book for me to write because um, I began it two weeks after PJ, my beloved mother and, you know, decades long writing partner had passed away. 
So um, I, uh, there is a lot of grief in there and um, heartache and, um, yeah, just the familiar relations and, um, you know, the, the devotion and dedication of parents, even if they're really going off the wrong track. Two weeks seems very soon to, to pick up writing. How, how did you manage that? Well, yeah, um, you know, you could always be prepared for an eventuality. And PJ had been quite ill with um, heart failure for many years. But even though we knew what would come to pass sooner than later, you're just never really prepared. And so I was sort of in a haze and pondering, do I really want to continue this series, the Monkey Wrench series that we started together without her? And finally, I realized the only way I was going to find out was to sit down in front of that computer. And I I just can't even express how amazing and intense the experience was. It will probably never be that way again. But I was a woman possessed. I could not stop writing. Um, She was just there with me. Your presence was so vivid. And, and of course, writing is my enduring tether to her. So it was really like we were working together. And amazingly, the first draft was finished in five months. And usually it takes a year or more to write a book. So she was very much inspirational in this process. And I felt so close to her. Did you have to change how you write in order to sit down and write this particular book, not having your, your longtime writing partner there with you? Actually, not really. We've been doing it for so long together, and, you know, her presence was was so vivid. And I guess the the one thing I can explain about that is is that the the voice of PJ Tracy was never her voice or or my voice. It was one we created together, and it was a language we were both fluent in. So it really seemed like a seamless um, transition. What was difficult for me was not having that banter back and forth, you know, sitting across the desk from her, you know, and that's often how our plots unspooled and somebody would say something and then it's like, oh, I have an idea. And, you know, certainly my my imaginary friends in in, uh, my head aren't as um, intelligent and fun as PJ. But um, I don't know. I, I guess that I, you know, as I said before, she's, you know, still very present with me in writing and still in every word I write. For people who, who don't know the story of you and your mom, can you tell us a little bit how you two got started writing out together? Oh, yes, certainly. Well, actually, I have to go way back to the beginning because literally our collaborative process began when I was about three years old at Bedtime Story Hour. And, you know, she would read me a story, but, you know, we were voracious. We could, There was never enough. So it was PJ's idea to say, hey, let's write our own stories. So at that, you know, age, obviously, you know, I'm not doing much, but we'd, she'd write a sentence, I would come up with a sentence, and then we would act them out with my stuffed animals, Lammy and Teddy, who still <laughs> sit on my desk. And, you know, that was the genesis of our process together. And, of course, it's been refined over the years, but that really began it all. We were, you know, so in- incredibly close and had so much fun. I mean, for two women who wrote about very dark things and murder. We were laughing all the time. I love this note in your bio that you decided finally to to write, to finance your habits of travel and singing in rock bands. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to try everything, and I figured, you know, when you're young, it is so important to do what you really feel passionate about, whatever it is, and even if it's 20 things you feel passionate about, because I just never wanted to 
you know, get on later in life and have regrets that I didn't do this or I didn't travel or I didn't sing in a rock band. So, but, you know, I'd always written from the time I could hold a crayon and there was an old manual typewriter in our den when I was a kid. And so I would just go in there. I just wanted to be alone and write. So that was always in my heart and my soul. I just had to have a little fun before I got serious. So now that you've kind of gotten over this hurdle of writing without your mom and you've attacked the Monkey Ranch crew head on, are you going to keep following their exploits? Well, I'm I'm definitely going to. I mean, they, they are like old friends to me now. And I always joke, it's like around the holiday time, it's like, why am I not getting a Christmas card for my characters? You know, they're, <laughs> they're that close. And I'm actually um, about 40 pages away from finishing Monkey Ranch number 10, which will be out next um, year, but I do really want to do a standalone in between. Take a little break, re-energize, kind of develop some new writing chops. So that's a future project I'm very excited about tackling. And will you continue writing under the PJ Tracy name? I will. Yep. It's it's. I guess it's my name now. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken over the mantle of PJ Tracy entirely. Thank you so much for taking some time out and talking to us about the new book. It's called The Guilty Dead. And we look forward to whatever else you have uh, coming down the pike. Oh, thank you very so much. It was wonderful chatting with you. And that is all she wrote for this week's chapter. Next time around, New York Times bestseller Tana French returns with the standalone thriller Witch Elm. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and we're always available on Twitter and Instagram. Say it with me now at WCBS880books.